0: In his name we pray, Amen. It's good to be with you, church, our downtown congregation, our north congregation, and south and west and our congregation at Saint John. It's it's an honor to share God's word with you today. After an incredible three weeks, um, looking at God's heart for the nations, we're back in the Gospel of Matthew today, particularly back in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is all about his kingdom. If you remember, we've been talking about his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, what is it? How do we enter into it? And how are we as God's people called to live in his kingdom? One of the critical things that Jesus has taught us already through the Beatitudes is that the kingdom of heaven is a gift. It's a gift, you enter into it not through earning, but by receiving not by our powers and our works, but by coming under the power and work of King Jesus. And so this means that you don't have to change, you don't have to clean up yourself to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's not by your power, it's not by your work. But this does mean that once you do enter, once you do enter and come under his royal power, you will change, It's inevitable. I wonder if you're like me and you ask sometimes, how do I know if I'm a Christian? How do I really know that I've come into his kingdom? Jesus is saying, here's how to know. Do you see the change? Do you see the change? It might be slow and there might be seasons where the change might seem non-existent, but here's the promise of Jesus. If you've been saved by him, there will absolutely be changed. You can't experience him forgiving you without yourself becoming more forgiving. You can't come to know his mercy without yourself becoming more merciful, without the change. Jesus's nature is such that, his power is such that, you can't come to know him, you can't experience him without it changing you. Now let's be clear, it's not the change that saves you, but the change shows that you've been saved. He loves us to invite us into his kingdom, just as we are, but he loves us too much to let us stay the way that we are. We're gonna be in Matthew chapter five, verses 21 through 22 today. We're starting a section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he's going to give us six statements, and the formula for all six statements is this. Jesus is going to say, you've heard it said, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you, and all six statements are concerning human relationships, human relationships. Jesus is saying if we belong to him, if we've been saved by him, and we have entered into his kingdom, then all of our human relationships are going to change. The way that we deal with each other, the way that we treat each other, the way that we speak to each other, it's not gonna remain the same, it's going to change. And so in the coming weeks we're gonna look at all of these six ways that our relationships are going to change and therefore look vastly different than the rest of this world. The six ways are anger, lust, marriage, oaths, or the promises and the commitments we make to one another, revenge, and finally love. So just simple and light things. And so this week and next week we're going to be looking at what Jesus has to say to us about anger in our relationships. Right? Anger, church is it we're talking about? How many of you struggle with anger? Let's read it together. Matthew chapter five, verse twenty-one. You have heard that it was said to those of old, "You shall not murder," and whoever murders will be liable. To judgment, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, it's important to know that when Jesus when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, he's not referring to the Old Testament. When referring to the Old Testament, Jesus says always, it is written, right? It is written, not you've heard it said and so he's not pitting himself against the Old Testament, instead he's correcting what has been taught about the Old Testament commands. What the religious leaders were teaching was that the way you fulfill this commandment of God, you shall not murder, is by externally, physically, not murdering somebody, okay? Now as you hear that kind of teaching, what are you thinking? Well that sounds reasonable, right? What's wrong with that? Jesus is starting his teaching where we can all agree, whether you're a Christian here or not, and maybe you struggle with sections of the Bible, but we can all agree on this one, right? Murder is wrong. If you murder somebody, there should be judgment, there should be punishment, right? Not a trick question, we should all agree. So I think it's safe to say that we all agree on that, but let me ask you somewhat of a simple question. Why is murder wrong? Why is murder wrong? What would your answer be? What if you believe the person deserved it? What if they really wronged you in some way? What if your life would be so much better if they were gone? Well, it seems obvious that none of those reasons would justify murder, right? But I want you to know that the Christian worldview has a unique answer as to why it's wrong. Well, you may be saying it's wrong because we all all agree it's wrong. Well, just because we all agree on something doesn't make it right. Some of the greatest atrocities throughout human history has happened because entire societies of people have agreed on something. We need a standard of measure that doesn't change, right? With with the human opinion of the day. Why is murder wrong? Honestly, if you have a worldview that says there is no God, you really can't have an objective reason for why murder is wrong. We believe it's wrong, we treat it like it's wrong, but you can never say it is wrong, right? Because where did you get your standard of measure from? From you, right? So you could change it, but the Bible gives us the most unique and objective reason for why murder is wrong and more than that, it gives us the reason and basis for all human rights that we hold so dear and we should hold dear The reason that the Bible gives for why murder is objectively wrong is that it says human beings have been made, have been created in the image of God. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 9.6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Why does the Bible say murder is wrong? It's not wrong because of the way we feel about the person that's been murdered. It's not wrong because they they didn't deserve it or because we all agree that it's wrong. No, as Christians, we hold a unique belief that every human being, without exception, from the womb to the tomb, from the womb, right? Christians should be absolutely torn apart by what the New York legislators passed concerning abortion a few days ago. Do you see why human agreement can't be the standard? We all agree murder is wrong, except when it comes to the unborn. We hold a unique belief that every human being, without exception, from the womb to the tomb, no matter what gender, from every ethnic group and culture, from every social class and demographic bears the image of God. And that ultimately, murder is wrong because when you murder a person created in God's image, it's an all-out assault on what makes us human. It's an all-out assault on God himself. What this is showing us is that God has so loved humanity and bound himself up with us that to wrong people, is to wrong him, right? And, there, and he will judge it accordingly. No matter the value a society gives to any individual, this is where their true value comes from. They've been created in God's image. Listen, in every society until Jesus returns, there will be an attempt to devalue certain persons, devalue them because they lack utility or because they're an inconvenience or they're seen as a threat, but Jesus makes it clear that the baseline assumption in his kingdom is that every person, from conception to their final breath, has intrinsic value, dignity, and worth, and therefore, murder is wrong, and that's why. But then Jesus takes it a step further than that. Matthew 5, 21 through 22. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry, right? Not just murder, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is making a parallel statement about anger. That's what he's doing. His point is that murder is wrong, right? Right? and it deserves punishment, right? Jesus is saying the same is true about your anger towards others. He's saying the way that you feel about murder, the way that you feel about murder, do you feel the same way about your anger towards other people? Your feelings about it line up because God will judge them in the very same way. How, why? Well, we'll get to that, but for now, just realize that this is what Jesus is saying. Anger and murder deserve the same punishment. Just let that sit on you for a little bit. Jesus is saying anger and murder deserve the same punishment. Right now, as you sit, think of the people in your life that you're angry at. You might be letting yourself off the hook, disguising it with other words like, I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated at them. I'm not angry, I'm just irritated. I'm not angry, I'm just annoyed, right? But these are all words that we use to hide the reality of the matter, that we're angry. Are you angry? Is there just a low-level anger that you're carrying around with you all day, every day? And so for the rest of our time together, let's ask three questions concerning anger. First, what is it? Is it inherently sinful? Second, how do we typically express sinful anger? And third, so then how can we change? Okay, so the first question, what is anger? Is it inherently sinful? If anger in and of itself was sinful, we would not have the Bible telling us, saying, in your anger, do not sin in your anger do not sin. If anger was by definition sinful, it would mean that we have a God who sins and that Jesus wasn't sinless because all throughout the Bible, we see a God who's perpetually angry towards sin and evil. We see Jesus flipping over tables out of anger because the house of prayer had been turned into a den of thieves. John Chrysostom, an early church father, said this about anger. He said, he that is angry without cause sins but he who is not angry, when there is cause, sins. In other words, there is such a thing as righteous anger. Now the problem is, many times, we think we're righteously angry, but we're really not, or it might actually start as righteous anger, but in about 2.5 seconds, we express it in sin, right? But there is such a thing as pure and holy and righteous anger, and our God is filled with it. That's the biblical truth. Now you may be saying, I believe in a God of love, not a God who gets angry. Don't you see, if you had a God who never got angry, then you wouldn't have a God of love either. Because the only way to never get angry about anything is if you don't love anything. If you really love something and you see the thing that you love being threatened, that's when anger comes out. That's when you get angry. Parents in the room, you know this already. If you're out somewhere eating at Hat Creek or something, and... and, you're looking at the playground, your kid's playing, and then all of a sudden you see another grown-up grab them by their arm, just yelling at them. What do you do? How do you respond? Or God forbid, somebody coming along, snatching your kid up and running towards the van. What do you do? Just a benign tolerance, oh, I'm sure they're okay. No, right? You get furious, right? Some of you, some of you are furious just thinking about it right now. What you do is you should go on a rampage, right? Your anger immediately goes full throttle, right? How, why? Because anger at the purest level is a destructive force, but it's the destructive force for the good of those that we love. Pastor Tim Keller says this, anger is the capacity to be roused to action by the side of evil. It's put into us by God. It's part of being in His image. Therefore, it's a precious thing. He said anger is love in motion toward a threat to that which you love. If something you really love is threatened, you get angry at the thing that's threatening it. That's why anger pulverizes. That's the reason anger disintegrates. It disintegrates the thing that's endangering that which you love. And so anger acts, always acts to protect the thing that we love and to destroy the thing that's that's threatening the thing that we love. And so what's the problem? That sounds like a good thing. The problem is that St. Augustine said our loves are disordered, right? We love the wrong things and we don't love the things that we ought to in the right order and so we get angry at the wrong things, right? Because we're loving the wrong things. And we get angry way out of proportion because we're not loving it in the right way. I have four kids and so I get angry all the time, okay? But oftentimes, when I get angry at my kids, the real reason is that my loves are disordered. That's why. I'm loving the delusion of a quiet evening at home more than my kids that require parenting. That's why I'm getting angry. I'm loving the comfort of sitting than the radical joys of putting my kids to bed for the fifth time in a row in the same night. The problem here is that I'm defending the wrong thing. I'm loving the wrong thing. Anger is righteous when it's defending the right thing. Anger is righteous when it's expending energy to destroy evil, injustice, and sin. But an anger is sinful when it's defending the wrong thing and it's it's expending energy to destroy people that are created in God's image. Our anger is sinful when we are more interested in destroying the sinner than the sin. And so while anger itself isn't inherently sinful, but oftentimes, I don't know about you, but for me, like a 99 times out of 100 times, the anger that I'm experiencing on a day to day basis is sinful anger. And so the second question, how do we typically express sinful anger? How do we typically express it? Let's read verse 22 again. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. See that part where it says whoever insults his brother? It's so general in the ESV, but other, trans- other translations like the King James Version maintains the Aramaic word that Jesus is using there, which is the word raka. And he says whoever shall say to his brother raka shall be in danger of the council. So what Jesus is saying here is that typically, the way that we express our sinful anger towards one another is in these two primary ways. One way is by saying you fool, or moros in the Greek. And another way is by saying raka, an Aramaic word literally meaning you nobody, you non-person, you. Okay, so let's look at the word moros first because this is the most classic way that we view anger. How many of you, when you get angry, the way you express that anger is just by blowing up at the person? Right? I'm not just talking about you go crazy and losing control. I'm talking about someone crosses you and you just unleash your vicious rhetoric on him. Right? Or it could be just a calculated slight, calculated jab. You know, that's moros. It's where we get the English word moron. Whoever says you moron, You idiot, you fool, you're angry so you're exploding on them and you're trying to cut deep, you're trying to inflict as much harm as possible with your particular calculated choice of words. Have you ever done this? I know I have. Do you know what Jesus says? Whoever says you fool, you moron, will be liable to the fires of hell. We'll be liable to the fires of hell. Now to be clear, if you're in Christ, you won't get hell because Jesus received the wrath of God for us on the cross, but are we at least able to see that we're liable? you at least able to see that. That we're liable to the fires of hell because of it. That calling somebody an idiot is a hell-deserving sin. That's what Jesus is saying. Whoa, take it easy, Jesus, you might be saying, right? The fires of hell just because I call somebody an idiot? Well, they are an idiot, you know? <laughs> Why is Jesus saying this? Jesus' point is that at the root of physical murder, think about it, what's at the root of physical murder? Well, there's hatred, right? There's a wanting for harm to come somebody's way. And therefore, what's at the root of calling somebody an idiot or a fool or anything else said in anger? A want for harm to come their way right? Both actions come from the same desire, the same place, and therefore they both will incur the same judgment. But you might be saying, surely there's a difference between physically murdering somebody and hurting somebody with just words, as vicious as the words might have been. Isn't there a difference? Of course there's a difference, but we had nothing to do with the difference. The only thing Jesus is measuring is this. Did you have in your heart a desire to bring harm to somebody, and to the extent that you were willing and able under the constraints of self-preservation did you act on that desire? Let's look at it this way. There's an acorn, right? And within the acorn contains the possibility of an entire oak tree. And then all the acorns that that tree is gonna produce, and therefore the possibility within one acorn, the possibility of an entire forest Within one little acorn is the possibility and the potential to grow into an entire tree, an entire forest. Now what's the only difference between one acorn becoming that and another acorn just sitting there? What's the only difference? The opportunity it has, right? Under the proper soil conditions, under the proper moisture conditions and light conditions, that acorn will grow into a large oak tree. And so the desire to bring harm to a person who is created in God's image, that's the acorn. Right? That's the acorn. That desire has the potential to grow into words spoken in anger. That desire has the potential to grow into murder or even genocide, an entire forest. Right? All of it comes from the same desire to harm somebody, the same acorn. And the only difference between a murderer and, and you are the conditions, the conditions in which you were born, conditions in which you were raised, the kind of parents you had, the kind of hardships you had to endure, the amount of opportunities you've had, and etc. Under the same conditions, if you were born and grew up, under the exact same conditions as the murderer, it would be you sitting in that jail cell waiting your sentence. Why would you believe any different? Because you're somehow just better? That's why as Christians we should never say, I could never do that. Because under different conditions you would have done that. Everything is grace, everything is mercy. And so instead of judging the conditions that you had nothing to do with, that you had no control over, Jesus is simply judging, did you desire in your heart to bring harm to that person? And to the extent that you were willing and able under the constraints of your conditions, did you act on that desire? And we all do. All the time. Somebody angers us and we explode in our anger to the extent that we're able, under the restraints of our conditions, we outwardly and viciously attack with our words and and maybe even physically. Moros encompasses all of that. Moros is the exploding of anger. And then there is raka. Raka means you nobody, you non-person. When you're counting somebody as a nobody, That's not really an explosion of anger, is it? You're not really trying to harm by expending your energy on them. Instead, what are you doing? You're writing them off, right? It's an implosion of anger. Someone has crossed you, they failed you, they've hurt you, so now they're dead to you. You couldn't care less what happens to them. Actively doing something or saying something to harm a person is hating but it's a whole other level of hate when you don't care whether good or harm comes to a person. You're saying you're not even worth my time, my energy in trying to hurt you. You're nobody and you're dead to me. This is a whole other level of hate. It's called indifference, indifference. Indifference is the worst form of hate. As we've been talking about anger this whole time, there are some of you who thought, I don't struggle with anger, I don't explode in fits of rage, I don't get into arguments, right? But instead, what do you do? You write people off. You're not exploding in your anger to kill them out there. You're imploding in your anger to kill them in here, in your heart. They're dead to you now. They are raqqa to you. Nobody, non-person. And this is pretty scary stuff. I was leveled by this as I was studying it this week. Jesus is saying that you break this commandment, thou shalt not murder. If you look at any human being and feel like this person isn't important. You're murdering when you look at any human being created in God's image and saying to yourself, they're not important. Jesus is addressing our feeling of superiority over other people, our arrogance, our disdain, our feeling like I'm so much better than you, looking at the way that somebody has wronged you and hurt you and thinking, I could never do that to a person and then just cutting them out of your life because they're inconsequential. And Jesus is saying this too is a murder, murderous sin. You're saying they're not worth the pain. They're not worth the pursuit, right? That's murderous. And so how can we change? How can we fulfill God's commandment not to murder? And how can we change in the way that we deal with anger in our relationships? The bulk of this, steps to forgiveness and extent in the urgency we ought to pursue reconciling with one another we're gonna talk about next week. But I wanna just give you a few things. First, the next time you get angry, every time you get angry, ask yourself, what am I defending, right? Make it a habit, every time you get angry, Ask yourself, what am I defending? What am I defending right now? As we talked about, if anger always acts to protect what we love, then there's nothing quite like anger to show us what we love, right? And more times than not, we'll find that what we're defending is our own ego. What we're defending is our own comforts, our own reputation. Identify what you're defending, and therefore what you're loving, and ask yourself, well is that worth loving? Is that worth loving? And am I loving that at the right level? Is that worth defending? Second, do the opposite of moros. Do the opposite of moros. Do the opposite of using your words to bring harm to people. Everyone being created in God's image means that what? That you too, you're created in God's image. And think about this. Our God is a God who loves words. Did you know that? He loves words. Words. He loves words, and his words has so much power that it creates what it demands. He says, let there be light in their justice, simply because he spoke it. And so bearing God's image means that our words have power too. There are many of you, if not most of you, the greatest pain that you've ever experienced in your life is not because of what someone did to you, but because of what someone said to you. Our words have power. if we're speaking, and the intent of speaking of the words is, because we want pain, because we want harm, guess what? There will be pain. It will cause harm. Your words have power. And so yes, our words have the power to cut deep and bring devastating pain, but it also has the power to lift up and build and encourage people out of their deepest sorrows and darkness, Paul tells us in Ephesians four, speak only words that is good for building up, that it may give grace to those who hear, that it may give grace. When someone wrongs you and you get so angry and you're tempted to murder them with your words, give them grace instead with your words. Speak only the words that will be good for building up, not tearing down. Third, do the opposite of raka. Do the opposite of writing people off as unimportant and treating them as non-persons. At the heart of this commandment, you shall not murder. God is saying, I want you to see people, I want you to notice people, and I want you to cherish every human being. That's at the heart of this commandment. Even if the whole world considers them unimportant and of no consequence, you say no, this person, this person too bears the image of God and therefore is worth the pain and is therefore worth the pursuit. Have you ever read through the Gospels and just wondered at the way that Jesus notices people? Right? He's in the midst of a huge crowd, always in the middle of going to do something very important, right? But then all of a sudden he stops and he notices the sick person. All of a sudden he stops and notices the blind man and the sick woman and the lame person. He stops and he sees them and pays attention to the pain they're in, pays attention to the sin that, that, that's entrapping them, Jesus stops to see people that nobody else saw, that everyone else ignored, and he moves toward them, not away from them. Ross Lester, our West Congregation pastor from South Africa, he taught me a Zulu greeting that I think is so beautiful, and so I've been using it, and the greeting is, I see you. That's the greeting, I see you. So many times people come and go and we pass by people without any acknowledgement, right? To see people, to acknowledge them, acknowledge that you see them, to acknowledge that you see God's image in them, it's a beautiful thing. Lastly, what we have to realize is that at the cross, God did all three of these things. He did all three of these things, didn't he? He was angry. Why was he angry? What was he defending? He was defending his love for his own holiness. He was defending his love for his own people. And was it worth defending, was it worth loving? Yes, but how could he do it? How could he pour out his pulverizing anger on our sin and our rebellion without also destroying and pulverizing us? He could have taken the Moros route and just exploded his anger on us that would have protected his holiness but would have destroyed us in the process. He could have taken the rocker route, just written us off and just been done with us. Well, that would have protected us from destruction, but he would have sacrificed his own holiness in not dealing with our sins. And so what did he do? At the cross, his anger and his love, came together. He did the opposite of Moros. Through the cross, God spoke a better word, not the words of destruction, but the words of healing and comfort, the words of you are my son, not my enemy. You are my daughter in whom I am well pleased. He did the opposite of Raqqa, God sees us, he didn't write us off, he was even willing to turn away from his son, so that he wouldn't have to turn away from us. Right? He defended his love for his own holiness by pouring out all of his wrath against sin, but he also defended his love for his own people by pouring out that wrath not on us, but on his son instead. And this is what ultimately changes us. A cross, this is what ultimately changes us. If you're here and you know that there's anger in your heart towards a brother, towards a sister, what King Jesus is saying to you today is this. You can't experience the cross and at the same time still cling to your anger. You can't do it. You can't experience the cross of Jesus and still cling and hold and maintain that anger you have against your brother or your sister. You must change, you must change, and you will change if you're his. Because you know what it was like for someone to turn away from their anger against you and instead offer you grace. Turn away from your anger. Be determined to turn away from your anger and offer people grace instead. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great love towards us. We thank you for your great love for your own holiness and righteousness and justice. And therefore, we thank you for your great anger that pulverizes and does away with anything that threatens to destroy us, anything that threatens to cause us to be lured away from you. Father, we ask that you would continue to display actively your fury and your wrath and your anger against anything and everything and anyone that, that would threaten our being with you. And Father, one of the greatest things that threaten our knowing you and our experiencing you is our own anger, our own sin, our own unwillingness to be melted and to be changed by the forgiveness demonstrated at the cross, by the mercy demonstrated at the cross, the great love poured out for us at the cross. And Lord, out of your great pulverizing power of your anger and fury and wrath, will you absolutely destroy the anger that we hold in our hearts against other people? Do away with it, Lord. Be zealous over your great love for us, for your holiness, and destroy the anger that we so hold dear in our hearts. Make us a forgiving, merciful, reconciling, gracious people that reflect the heart of our King Jesus towards us. In Jesus' name we pray.